1: If you've never listened to an episode of this show before, my goal is to bring you a variety of interviews with really cool people who are entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, business leaders, people who have been entrepreneurs since the day they were born and people who looked at 60 years old and said, oh, my God, my ladder is against the wrong wall. I better start over and everything in between. Uh, If you like the show, jump over to iTunes and leave a review. It makes my day so much better when someone leaves a new review. So before we get going with today's interview... I have to thank the first sponsor of this episode, and that is my friends at Amplifier. Now, many of you offer physical products to your fans and your customers, but dealing with the physical stuff, that can be a pain, and it steals all of your precious time. Well, my buddies over at Amplifier, they blend order fulfillment, screen printing, and on-demand production into a single self-service platform that you control. And I'm using them because I have those new Try New Things t-shirts, and they're the ones who are printing those for me, and they're awesome to work with. They can integrate your e-commerce shop and help drive your giveaway campaigns. They are great for giant internet powerhouse companies as well as entrepreneurs who are just starting out. And on demand means no inventory risk. But as you grow, you can stock up on inventory and Amplifier can take care of all of that for you. Go to amplifier.com slash cool things and sign up today. So speaking of today, today's show... I have Steven Sashin, and he is from Zero Shoes. And when I first met him, one of the things that struck me is he found out that uh, I might be hike- hiking the Appalachian Trail in six years, and they have shoes that are going to be really cool for that. Uh, also, turns out, he has done a lot of things. He's never really had the regular job. He's been an entrepreneur all along. I think he was afraid he was just going to be smarter than anyone who would be his boss. And uh, he's probably right about that. He's done a whole bunch of things, including having done some voiceover work and some stand-up, as well as having started a whole bunch of companies. And I don't even know where today's interview is going to go, because we only have a half hour, and this guy has done so many things as an entrepreneur. It's crazy. So, Stephen Sashin, welcome to Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do.
0: Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here.
1: So, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about, about who you are, and then let's talk about Zero
0: Shoes. Yeah. I don't know the who I am part. There's way, I I literally don't have, it's funny when my wife and I would be at dinner parties and people would say, um, what does your husband do? I would literally leave and let her just try and take that one on because it's just way too much. Um, so I'm just a guy who never, yeah, I never had a job. I got, I think I'm just a few years too old to have gotten Ritalin, which would have knocked it out of me. So (laughs) instead I've, uh, Since I was about six, and you know what, the first job I had—I just realized—was polishing my dad's shoes. Once he told me it was $0.25 for a pair of shoes and $0.50 for a pair of boots, his shoes were notoriously and continually dirty. And so that was my first gig. And then uh, from the time I was 13, I did magic at kids' birthday parties for a living and was actually a professional magician for a while. Then that moved into stand-up comedy and that turned into somehow getting a master's degree in film at Columbia University. While I was doing that, I invented uh, what became the industry standard word processing software for film and television writers. Uh, I was doing stand-up at that same time and acting at that same time, and um, actually one of my favorite gigs ever. I did a lot of voiceover work, and uh, I think I made about $25,000 for doing the following. Here we go. Ready? <clears throat> Fire! That was it. <laughs> and I was in and out <laughs> of the studio that, that long, and it was like they played that forever. What was that but, for? It was an Army commercial. The Army did something really interesting. They would do voiceover stuff with real actors, Well, whatever that means with actors, I don't know if there's a thing called a real actor. And then if the radio commercial went well, then they would do that same commercial on video with actual people in the service. So we were kind of a test bed for them. But that was very entertaining. I'd be at comedy clubs and I'd hear that commercial. It's like, okay, get ready, get ready, fire! Yeah, that was me. (laughs) Of course, nobody
1: believed So let's talk a little bit about the comedy before we get into the world of shoes. uh, sure. So I I started in March of this year going to open mic nights, and I've done 26 of them around the country because I travel so much uh, as a professional speaker. I'm often in hotel rooms, and I could either watch Netflix or I could go to open mic night. And I figured out just a few months ago at age 51 at the time, 52 now, that – you know, it was kind of fun and it's been stretching me. I actually call it cross training for my speaking career because stand up, I oh, think, wow. is the hardest use of the spoken word. I've done 400 uh, podcasts, I have given 800 professional speeches, I've done improv, I was in a, a short film, I did acting in high school. Uh, stand up is hard. And it really pushes you and gives you a whole new sense of uh, humility and confidence all at once. So let's talk a little bit about your experience actually doing stand-up professionally because I only go to open mic nights.
0: Well, you sort of nailed it. I mean, you it's, it's a very peculiar skill. It's a very peculiar art because there are certain unspoken limitations. Like you need to get a laugh every X number of seconds. Or if you're not doing it over those number of seconds, you know, the laugh that comes after has to be worth the wait. And – The nature of comedy has changed quite a bit. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld made a comment about this recently, that that lately the trend in comedy is to to tell funny stories from your life, which is okay, but it's not the same as writing jokes. And so the thing about doing stand-up is that you are simultaneously crafting a persona while you're finding out who you are and what you want to say and how you want to say it under this limitation of having to get a particular response from people every X number of seconds. And the confidence thing, undeniable. Um, one of the things that I can tell you having done Stand Up for a Living for 10 years is that in a situation like this, being on a podcast or speaking for anything, I'm totally fearless. Or more accurately, I just don't care because I'm confident <laughs> that I can handle whatever happens in some way. Because I've just seen it. It's like when you see a comic get heckled, you know, a number of comics have said this, like, what are you thinking, you idiot? I do this for a living. There's nothing you're going to say that I haven't heard before, and if you have, that'll be fun because then I'll riff off that and still destroy you. So it, it's there. Um, I'll never forget. I met Jackie Mason at a show once. I was performing. Jackie was in the audience with a couple of very hot, um, let's call them hookers, and <laughs> he came up to me. I mean, just for fun, he came up to me after the show and he goes, "Hey, you're a very funny guy. How long you been doing this? Uh, two and a half years." And I'm like, "Holy crap! How would you figure that out?" and there's this weird thing that happens over time, and time is the only way you get at stage time, where you just develop a certain kind of, again, let's call it a confidence or more accurately, a lack of concern for how it goes. You trust yourself enough to not try to push the envelope. Like People ask me, and I'm going to stop ranting in a second. People ask me often, when they hear that I did comedy, they ask me if I go to comedy shows, and I say, by and large, no, because I'm allergic to the stench of desperation, And when you're just starting comedy, and I'm not saying this is you, but for most of us just starting comedy, we're trying so hard to get that response. And that trying eventually happily goes away. And then you're able to be present and just respond and deal with whatever.
1: One of the things that happened to me is as a friend of mine who's a professional comic brought me to an open mic night in New York City. So the first time I ever did it, I was in Manhattan uh, in Greenwich Village at a comedy club doing this thing. And afterwards, the comics who were there, they announced it was my first time ever doing stand-up. And, of course, it's supportive that way. I've been at other shows where it's someone's first time and everybody's really clappy about it. Right? Uh, but I worked it into my bit that this was my first time and everybody cheered. And then afterwards, one of the comics came up in the bar and he goes, that was your first time? he goes and i said yeah and he goes you have an amazing stage presence. He goes obviously right. you need to figure out the 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 funny a little bit more but he goes right. he goes but you have an amazing stage presence and you know what he didn't know is i've given 800 professional speeches. Exactly. So exactly. while i was scared of the comedy part of it i wasn't it, being in front of an audience didn't freak me out and now that i've done this 26 open mic nights it definitely is helping me that that my stage presence
0: um, oh it's yeah, it's important. just a very different thing. And you know, what happens early on is it just goes up and down. Like we joked, the worst thing that could happen is that your first gig goes well, because then there's nowhere for it to go but down and guaranteed the next, you know, over the next couple, you're going to have one where that same act oh, yeah. gets nothing.
1: Oh, I've, I've, I've literally had it where it's like, they're like, yay, and now the old guy is sitting down. Uh, yeah, I've also yeah. noticed that at open mic night, it's usually just comics and they're usually 25-year-old guys talking about their uh, sexual parts. So it's right. – you know, I'm, yeah, I'm sort that. of the anomaly being in my 50s. But, yeah. but I have found it to be a very interesting thing and uh, it's always fun when I see people who have been comics at one point in their life who are very successful in their career. Do you think there's a tie in to acting and comedy and
0: entrepreneurship? Well, I think there's a psychological tie-in that we're independent and typically um, smarter than the average bear. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. It's like if you hang out in a comedy club at the bar with the comics, uh, most of the conversation is things like, did you see that thing on the Discovery Channel yesterday? That was amazing. Did you watch that thing about quantum mechanics? Holy crap, I didn't realize that there was a singularity. I mean, it's ridiculous. And so um, uh, so there's the, there's the iconic classic thing and the intelligent thing And they don't tell me what to do thing. And uh, so I think there's definitely a psychological connection.
1: So let's talk about your current company. What is Zero Shoes? How did it start? And uh, why do we care?
0: Sure. So think about your feet at the end of the day. You come home, you take off your shoes. Do you feel better? And if the answer is yes, it's because you've been wearing the wrong shoes. So your feet are amazing. You have a quarter of the bones and joints of your entire body in your feet and ankles. You have more nerve endings in your soles than anywhere but your fingertips and your lips. And that's not an accident. You're supposed to use these things. They're supposed to bend and flex and heal the world. And Zero Shoes let you do that. So they have a wide toe box so your toes can spread and relax. They're not elevated in the heel so it doesn't mess with your posture. They're super thin so you're low to the ground for balance and agility. They're crazy flexible so your feet can do that bending thing I was talking about. And the soles give you the right combination of feedback so your brain knows what's going on at the other end of your body and can control your whole body, um, but also lets you have the protection you need for anything you want to do. So we have casual and performance shoes and sandals that people use for everything from taking a walk to running ultra marathons, and they're all based on this foot-first idea. Or um, what was the line that I, I literally woke up this morning thinking? know oh, um, happiness your feet deserve was the line that I swear to God I woke up thinking it this morning, and um, I've got to write that down. So, uh, so that's what we do. And if you think about like normal shoes, they're typically comfortable only when you take them off your feet. You know, they're not shaped the way your feet are. They don't move the way your feet do. Here's a crazy thing. In the, in the 50 plus years that we've had athletic shoes that we're familiar with, that have pointy toes, elevated heels, wide flared soles, arch support, et cetera, there's zero evidence that those things provide any benefit in reducing injury and improving performance. Zero. Even though there's a huge motivation for doing that. Um, as a friend of mine from Harvard put it, she says, look, in the 60s, The running shoes were all thin leather soles and basketball shoes were Chuck Taylor's. And we weren't getting the injuries that we get now. What were you guys doing? She was saying to guys from Brooks and this. what are you guys doing and why? And, uh, and the only response that they had was, well, it's not like everyone's going to wear zero shoes right away. That Tells me I've got a big (laughs) gaping hole I can move into.
1: So what made you go from all the things you've done Um, to footwear?
0: Well, it was an accident. Um, I got back into sprinting 11 years ago when I was 45 and was getting injured pretty much constantly. And one day a friend of mine after a couple of years said, um, why don't you take off your shoes and see what you learned from running barefoot? And what I learned instantly was what I was doing wrong that was causing my injuries and more importantly, how to fix it. So I wanted that natural movement experience as often as I could have it. And I started making sandals just from this 10,000 year old idea, just a sheet of rubber and some string to hold it on your foot. And people kept asking for them more and more and more. And finally, this one guy says, hey, if you had a website, um, I'd put you in this book I'm writing about Barefoot Running. And so I had by that time built maybe 500 websites. So I rush home and I pitch this idea to my wife who tells me it is a horrible idea. And she, I agreed. You know, I'm a good husband. And she goes to bed around nine. And by 10, I had a website up. And uh, it just took off. What we thought was going to be maybe a car payment within two months was clearly our full-time job and then it's just grown from there from just being a do-it-yourself sandal making kit company to being a full aspirational lifestyle brand with shoes that people wear for everything you can imagine. Hmm.
1: So you work with your wife and I y- do. you started the business by not listening to her. How does that uh, how do those two things how do those two things go together?
0: Well, she did kind of growl at me the next morning and I said, "Look, we at the time we were starting a search engine optimization business and I said, "Look, um, it's a good case study. The people that are ranking for the keywords I care about, they're there by accident. I can own this in a few months. And I did. Um, So that calmed her down then, but we never really talked about starting the business. We just kind of did it. And it just so happens that we have really complimentary skill sets. She's the organizational, financial, HR kind of person, and I'm the product marketing guy. And so um, working with my wife has been by far the greatest, most satisfying thing in my life. She's whiz bang smart. I have watched her grow into this incredible business person I mean, she already started out as one and just she's evolved in a way that I, I just marvel at. And um, we've, we really like it. I mean, it's been great for us. And besides, she owns 96% of the stocks. What else am I going to say?
1: You got to be nice to her when that's the way it works. Yeah. <laughs> so what advice do you have for someone who wants to go and start a business? I mean, that's all you've done is sort of created your own way. You've just got a machete. Yeah. You're hacking your way through the, the the forest. What do you say to somebody else who's like, I want that life?
0: Yeah, I say uh, get a government job with a pension. <laughs> I'm totally serious. And, and
1: so if they won't listen to that advice,
0: then what uh, are you telling? what are you going to do? I mean, this is the thing. That advice, I'm totally serious. Like if someone had talked me into it. Um, it's a really good gig i'm fifty six right now and I have friends who are retiring and their government jobs of pensions and they literally don't know how to spend all the money and so uh, and you know there are government jobs that were would have been satisfying you just would have had to have really walked me through that and showed me that I just didn't know it I wouldn't have believed it then so if I say get a government job with a pension and you know if you're a real entrepreneur, there's no way that's going to talk you out of your idea no matter how stupid it is and that has a problem is and but if you're if That gives you any pause whatsoever. Get a government job with a pension. This is not for the faint of heart.
1: Well, I do have a a friend who is uh, launching a very successful speaking career after a career. He's my age. He's early, mid-50s after a long, full career in the FBI, and he's Mm. retiring with a pension that is a great number per month. So he has no fear that if his speaking career didn't work out everything's taken care of and yet he's crushing it he's making more money speaking than he did as an <laughs> FBI agent and he's got this full pension so uh there was something to be said for you know 30 year uh you know 25 years working in the yeah. government taking the pension and then starting his entrepreneurial venture cuz he's absolutely. got that safety net
0: Yeah absolutely i mean people people i think I don't know that there's two kind of people in the world—people um, who divide the world into two and others who don't—but the—but there, there's undeniably a different flavor for someone who is willing. You know, someone, someone asked Lynn and I once something about uh, how we take this risk, and we said, "Well, we just don't perceive it as a risk. It is. It's ridiculous. I mean, we're we are currently personally guaranteeing over two million dollars in debt, um, but hey, we also have no assets, so there's no downside really. But it, it, there's but it's for people it's kinda of like stand up actually. Some people say, well, doing stand up sounds really crazy and risky. Those of us who've done it for a living, I don't I don't remember ever hearing anyone who's done that for a living think of it that way. Well and I so, the
1: stand up I don't see it really as a risk because, you know, like I said, I'm I'm right now i've just done open mic nights but even so that's a three to five minute thing and i've had some where people have said wow dude for being brand new you were the funniest guy tonight i've had some where people are like really don't quit your day job old man and (laughs) and yet it's over in in three or four minutes and i'm growing and i'm learning there's no downside to it but i can't tell you how many of my friends are like dude you're my hero i would never do that i'm like why not you know i mean well well,
0: you know they there's that whole thing that they say public speaking is people's biggest fear and of course stand-up comedy is a subset of that where look what's the worst thing that's going to happen is people stare at you for it's Three minutes, five minutes, and then they walk away. It was actually I did a, <laughs> I did a gig once. Um, it was going to be on television, and they taped me a Catch Rising Star in New York, and then the next night at a gig out on the road in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I did the exact same set. A catch on the first night killed Bethlehem. The next night couldn't buy a laugh, <laughs> and it was really. I mean, this is going to be on national television, so it was um, a little upsetting. But, you know, my girlfriend walked in with a giant piece of chocolate cake naked, and it was all over in 20 minutes. You're fine. (laughs) Hey, you know, that's all it takes. (laughs) She was a very smart woman. She knew that naked and chocolate cake was a good combination. Uh, Well,
1: there you go. Now, is that girlfriend your wife?
0: No, no. This girlfriend is actually a very famous um, producer, director, writer now.
1: Oh, well, then, then, you know, she lost you, but she did
0: okay. She did fine. She's a wonderful, smart, brilliant person.
1: Awesome. Hey, so... I study this whole thing. I call it the paradox of potential. I pay a lot of attention to you know, people start businesses, and they're like, oh, my gosh, I have so much potential. Or their investors are like, oh, my gosh, there is so much potential. And then you look ahead, and of all the entrepreneurs who go out and start things, not everybody makes it across that gap between right. potential and results. But some people do. How come you think some people go farther to success where other people fall into the ravine? What's the delta?
0: Uh, Luck. Expand oh, wait, expand say else? expand
1: no yeah I want you to expand yeah. on luck and and to be honest with you we just talked about this several episodes ago luck's a real thing in entrepreneurship I'm I'm not yes, discrediting that. your answer because no, this no, is no, a real no, no. thing
0: look, look you know when I, so when I was in film school one of our, uh, my teachers was the uh, now late director Milos Forman and someone said to Milos so how do you make a good movie and he says ninety percent of making a movie is casting and the other ten percent is casting. And I, I say the same thing about business. 90% of success is luck, and the other 10% is luck. Oh, and then there's a whole other 100% that's working your ass off. Uh, so totally separate 100%. And I'm I'm being completely serious. I and mean, when I think about the number of incredibly lucky things that have happened for us that have allowed us to survive this far, we've been doing this now for almost nine years, and again, started it as a little hobby business selling a funky little $20 do-it-yourself sandal making kit. But when I think of the luck factor, it is massive and that doesn't discount the working our our butts off and being smart people factor But, um, but if I got rid of the luck part none of this would be here, none of it
1: so, but don't you think that part of it is you have to set yourself up for luck? Like yeah, recently, I've budget. gotten I've gotten a couple of really good leads to speak at conferences from people who listen to my podcast, and they happen to belong to an association, and they told the association well, manager. I mean,
0: look, but I don't I don't know that that's setting yourself up for luck as as much as it's just um, let's call it something like the law of large numbers. If you put yourself out there, look if you're at a party and someone asks you what you do, and you don't talk about what you do. Uh, then you haven't set yourself up for some possible thing. It's just math. Or if you know, I was at an event once, and I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but um, something for internet marketers. And I said, um, "So how many of you own a company?" And everyone raises their hand. I said, "How many of you have a logo for your company?" Everyone raises your hand. I said, "And why aren't any of you wearing a shirt with your damn logo on it right now?" And you know, I'm always yeah, you know, there's your stuff right behind you. Um, and I'm normally if I'm on a podcast, I'm normally wearing a zero shoes t-shirt now and wearing my bathrobe because I'm going to go being sick as a dog um and uh not trying to prove that you can make money in your, in your underwear
1: yeah we're not recording the video but i can see him yeah, and he is a, he looks like he's at a spy. he's got his hair up in a man <laughs> bun and he's got a big fluffy yeah. expensive white robe on and i'm like thinking yeah. this guy's at the four seasons
0: this is twenty dollars at kohl's <laughs> that um but nonetheless um the hell were we just talking about uh, uh the, setting yourself either. up for luck uh, set so yourself yeah i i don't know i mean yeah, anything you're anytime you're being more visible, you're making yourself more visible. Um, I don't know that that's luck. Look, here's the difference between setting yourself up for luck. And actually, I can't draw the line, but I'll say it this way anyway. So, here's the luck part. A friend of ours is out walking his dog one day. He normally doesn't, his wife does. He bumps into a guy that his dog knows. So, the dogs are talking, and while the dogs are talking, the guys start talking. My friend says to this other guy, What do you do? He says, I've been a footwear designer for 30 years, I just left Crocs. My friend says, Oh, you should meet Steven and Lena. They started a shoe company. This guy, Dennis, says, Sure, here's my phone number. And he hands hands, um, our friend the phone number, who hands it to us. I sat on it for a couple of months thinking, What would a guy who was the lead designer at Crocs want to do with a do it yourself sandal making company? This is funky little thing that we're running out of a corner of a spare bedroom. Anyway, I eventually call him. We had a great time. It turns out, you know, he's now our lead designer. Mm -hmm. So the lucky part is these two guys were walking their dogs when normally their wives do, and then the serendipity of Dennis having just left Crocs and liking what we're doing and all the rest. The not luck part is that, you know, this guy who's a friend of ours knew what we did and happened to be. And so, I mean, that's really it, is that that we were telling everyone what we did. Right. So, well, that's so, my
1: belief in setting yourself up is A, you were yeah. taking action and doing what you're doing. B, you let people know. And and that was my point is, yeah. you know, somebody was saying, oh, you're lucky that your podcast spins off business. And I'm like, I don't know that that's luck. It means four years of interviewing 350 right. or 370 people. And it means a couple of people listen who like the show.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I, I think you're onto it. I, I mean, just at that level, the word luck is a little wacky because it's sort of like saying you're lucky if you advertise and someone buys your product. It's like, no, no, no. You did this deliberate thing that set you up for the situation to happen. And so sometimes you get better situations than others. Sometimes someone buys one, someone sometimes someone buys ten of whatever you're selling.
1: Well, and I have a lot of friends, and somebody says, Oh, he's an overnight success. Yeah, well, for 10 yeah. years he barely made his mortgage and then he hit. Yeah. And it's like, is yeah. that really an overnight success or is that someone who was out there, you know, fighting the good fight and it worked out?
0: We're we're about to hit the nine year mark, you know, and it's and and it's been it just gets progressively better every year but um, we thought, you know, we'd be out of here at three years. We thought at the four-year mark, maybe someone's going to make us an offer. We thought, you know, it just keeps, it it, it does what it does. And I have friends who had started companies where they met the right person at the right time and made huge amounts of money before they even had anything more than a napkin drawing. You know, just, it does what it does.
1: So I've got more questions for you, Stephen, but first I have to thank the other sponsor of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. Podfly sets you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure that you're going to sound amazing. They do all the heavy lifting and the technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing really cool people like Stephen Sashen. Oh. Hey, huh? hey! if you want to start a podcast, and I know some of you do, jump over to podfly.net slash Cool Things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. And that offer is they give you a little discount on using their services. And I will tell you, they're the best vendor I've ever worked with at any time in my career. Love me some Podfly. So, Stephen, I call the show Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. So, my question for you is, what's the coolest thing you're doing with Zero Shoes right now?
0: Changing the world. That's it. I mean, literally. Literally. It sounds hyperbolic when I say it, but when you design f- shoes based on feet rather than based on just what everyone else has done, because that's the way it's happened for the last 50 years, you change people's lives. And this is actually Lena's line: She says, there's enough shoe companies and enough shoes out there that the last thing the world needs is another one of either, unless what you're doing changes people's lives. And the number of emails and phone calls and reviews we have with that phrase in it is huge. And it does it because... A, they're super, super comfy because they're way next to nothing. They let your feet spread and move naturally. But there's also research that shows that that kind of thing, that letting your feet work the way they're supposed to work, is crazy good for you. So you can do things like help with plantar fasciitis and knee osteoarthritis and patellar tendonitis and back pain and hip pain and knee pain and all these things that could become problems when you don't let your feet do their job. So that's our biggest thing is that we're what we're really trying to do is make natural movement as obvious a choice as natural food currently is, where people see it as the obvious, healthy, better thing to do. And that's, our, that's what motivates us. The, the emails that we get every day from people saying, holy smokes, I'm walking, running, hiking, pain-free for the first time ever or in years, that's what gets us out of it.
1: That's, that's awesome. Now, I'm excited. I want a pair of shoes.
0: Thank you. We call it our movement movement of trying to get people who understand natural movement. And Lena likes to say, you know, sometimes there are companies who will do things to support other ventures or other initiatives they have. And we, while we do that, um, and I'll mention that in a second, our biggest thing is that what we're doing is the mission. And so we're helping uh, other people experience it in other ways. We support a company called Souls for Souls and another called One World Running. It gets footwear to people in third world countries where they need footwear to do things like get into school or get a job, and they don't have any. And we're happy that we're able to give them footwear that's actually good for them.
1: That's awesome. So I love to ask the people who come on this show who it is in the world of entrepreneurship that they admire. Because I think entrepreneurs, I think, I think we're observers. Mm-hmm. So when you look out into the entrepreneur sphere, who do you say, hey, he or she, they're doing cool stuff
0: yeah yeah um, I, I don't have a good answer for that because I boy, how do I want to think of it um, I I'll say this in the, in the weirdest way I can think of it. I don't care what anyone else is doing because I'm not them so like when someone says hey we're gonna meet Richard Branson I go eh, eh, whatever I mean I want to get some shoes on his feet and have him call a hundred of his closest friends but I'm not gonna necessarily learn something that I can do from Richard Branson. And the reason that I can say this is or that I will say this is think of the number of people who've met Richard Branson with the idea of learning how to be the next Richard Branson and how many Richard Bransons are there? Arguably less than one. Even Richard Branson isn't Richard Branson. He is not the way we think of him. I mean, there's a lot of it that is, but, but if you knew him personally, you would find a whole rash of concepts and, and traits and things that are not what you imagine that are not part of his public persona persona. So, um, People that I know who've been very, let's call it, successful. <clears throat> when I, kn- I know them personally, I don't. Um, I neither admire nor disrespect them. That's just them doing what they did, and it had that result. And sometimes I learn some things technically, or you know, we. I get introduced to people because they know other people that I don't know. But I, by and large, I'll say it this way: I just don't have time to pay attention to what anyone else is doing and turn that into a thing. And part of it is also I'm 56, you know? I mean, how much am I going to change in my brain at this point?
1: <laughs> hey, the last question I ask everybody is, and you started to touch on this a little bit, so I want you to go a little deeper. What do you do okay. to give back to the greater good? Because I love it when I hear entrepreneurs who – who find a way to give back, and sometimes they tie their initiative to the way they give back. I My TED Talk just released, and it's called The Art of Giving Small. Every time I give a speech and I get a check, we give a little piece of that to two children's hospitals. And over the years, it's grown to $70,000. And it's like, how did that happen? I'm not I'm not rich. How did we give 70 – give and raise $70,000? And it, it became a TED Talk. And, That's right. Uh, so I love to hear what other people do because I think <clears> it's exciting when you hear how people find their method to give back to the greater good.
0: Yeah. And uh, just to dive in a tiny bit deeper, when we started this, one of the inspirations for Zero Shoes was uh, the Tarumara Indians in the Copper Canyon in Mexico, who are famous for running ultramarathons, either barefoot or in uh, huarache sandals, which are sandals they make out of a scrap of tire. Just they lace their foot with some leather. And these are people who run as part of their, lo- their life. Um, they also are sometimes called the Rarumari, which are um, the running people. And these people will, these people will run for hundreds of miles well into their 70s and 80s without injuries and without problems. And so they're, they inspired us. And so we've been giving back to them since day one. We were giving a percentage of, of the money we were making selling certain products to them since day one. This is not a percentage of profits. This was money off the top. Uh, when we, when we, couldn't quote afford to do it, but we really felt indebted to them. And we still do. We support them through the Tatamata Children's Hospital Fund, which the Tatamata are also uh, suffering from drought and poverty and problems with food and drug cartels coming in and taking over their area. Uh, it's very remote and, and tricky to, to navigate. And so th- they've been really, really struggling. And so we're supporting them that way. And again, as I mentioned, the um, Souls for Souls and One World Running, we. You know, Lane and I, we're looking to expand our philanthropic activity and we did an equity crowdfunding raise last year and one of the bonuses we gave to people who invested certain amounts of money is so that they could nominate charities that we would be supporting. Uh, we, so we want to expand what we're doing philanthropically. We want to do it in a way that's organic to what we're doing and who we are, not just randomly giving money to somewhere or doing something that sounds good, that's different than what it is. Like, hey, you buy a pair of our shoes, we're going to give a pair of cheap plastic flip flops to people somewhere else. like, no, no, that's not interesting. So to find something that's authentic other than what we're doing just with our, our movement movement um, is one of our one of our ongoing conversations and goals.
1: And that's kind of part of what I, I try to teach people is find something that matters to you. It can't just be a yeah. random. It can't be a random thing. The reason we give to children's hospitals, we give for research for kids born with cranial facial abnormalities is our daughter had to have her skull rebuilt as an infant. Oof, and man. so that's our cause. And you know, it turns out one in something like 5,000 kids have some sort of a craniofacial issue, whether it's the bones like Kate had, or whether it's things like cleft palate, uh, it all falls yeah. into that same thing. It can be tissue or it can be bone, but it's more common and nobody knows. And mm-hmm. so that's that's our cause because we went through it. The good news is, is Kate is sixteen. She's precocious. She's beautiful. She's a straight A student. She's kind of a force to be reckoned with. And she teases me all the time that you know, as a professional speaker, I w- I wanted to give a TEDx talk. I didn't want to speak about what I spoke about in my day to day stuff, but I thought it'd be fun. Right to get to do a TEDx. She actually did a TEDx speech long before I did. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. six months before I did. But still, she she's like, yeah, dad, you always wanted to do a TED, a TED talk and, and one fell into my lap. And
0: I did it before you. Oh, that's great. Lena and I before we started zero shoes, we were retired. Um, we back in the 99 2000, we'd done some clever real estate investing. And around 2006, we went, Hey, this is gonna crash. And we got out. But during that time where we had enough passive income, Uh, to support ourselves without having to do anything, we had a $1,000 a month charitable contribution fund. And after the first couple of months of supporting the things that we already knew and believed in and liked, we actually got kind of bored. And we um, just were looking for other things that were inspiring. And it was really fun because what we would do is we would just wait until something just landed in our lap, until something just showed up. We'd be listening to the radio. We'd meet someone who would say, hey, there's this thing. And invariably, um, by the end of the month, there was always something that happened little things like one of my favorites we walked into one of those uh vans that humane society had where they had puppies and kittens and and on the way out i said can i give you guys a donation and they said yeah i guess and so while they're talking to my wife i write a check for 500 and that was what we had left that month and i pulled it up and handed them the check and we you know thanked them for letting us pet the puppies and the kitties and we walked out and then about two steps outside the, the, the door from the van we just hear oh my god um, so they had never seen anything like that and a friend of mine managed charitable organization that's worth billions. And he said, I don't think you get it. If you gave us a thousand dollars, you would be in the top 1% of the top 1% of donors. That's how little people typically give." And we were shocked to hear that. So I guess that's my way of saying any little bit you do can make a much bigger difference than you would think. Most people do very, very little and it doesn't take a lot to
1: And a lot of people think that giving small doesn't – that's why I call it the art of giving small. A lot of people think that doing something like that doesn't matter and whether you do it where you you spread it around or like we've done, we've picked one charity and we've done it now for 12 or 13, 14 years where we have constantly you know, kind of trickled in and sort of tracked it. It's like that that becomes real money and and, and it yeah. really does make it make a difference. And I think people think, oh, charities only care about the big checks. No. And most charities, you know, they 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 do care about the big checks. Those are nice, but they they really rely on sort of that grassroots effort. And, you know, they say in the United States that, you know, we're a very giving country, but it's small amounts.
0: Yeah. I I live outside of Boulder, Colorado. It's sort of amazing. There's a lot of money here and um, it's a shocking and stingy town. And we find that really amazing. People just, uh, you, you, people, I think, and I think maybe there's a related, I think that the people who would otherwise give little don't because they think that the people who have a lot of money are giving a lot and they're not.
1: I think that's, I think that's true. I think that's very true. Well, Stephen, this has been a wonderful conversation. So before I let you go, I have two questions. One is how do people find you if they want to know more about you or they need to get some zero shoes?
0: Well, hopefully not by stalking me. So in lieu of that, you can find us online not surprisingly at zero shoes that's x e r o shoes pearl dot com or on social we're at zero shoes everywhere or slash zero shoes everywhere
1: all right that that's awesome so the last question is we call the show cool things entrepreneurs do so it's an entrepreneurial audience or a want entrepreneurial audience Ooh. what other thought would you say to people who are listening to this you know what pearl of wisdom would you leave us
0: <laughs> a pearl of wisdom oh man that's a Pretty high bar. Um, you know, uh, here's the only one I can think of. Um, my line is, what do I care what I think about me? And what that means is, there's a lot of people who have this idea that you're supposed to have some particular feeling before you do something or while you're doing something. Like you're supposed to feel confident or you're supposed to feel, I don't know, whatever it is, or think, you know, think positive thoughts or not think negative thoughts, whatever the hell those are. I don't even know what that means. Um, but by and large, I, you know, I just don't care what I think about me. I don't care if I'm confident because I know that this thing could fall apart at any moment. I don't care if I think it's a great product because the only people who will tell me if I'm right are the people who give me money. I don't care if I feel like I'm, you know, I can't do it today. I still have to get up and go and do things. Uh, so I'm, I just don't, I don't care what I think about me. And if you can stop caring about what you think about you, and take the appropriate action. And not, that doesn't mean the best one and it doesn't mean you're perfect every day. There's sometimes where I really crush it for a day and then I know the next day I'm gonna get nothing done. So, uh, but more importantly, the, once you get over the idea that you, of thinking that there's a particular way you need to be or even a particular way you need to act, then you have the freedom to actually do what's next. And the, the freedom also to um, bail if it's not working and try something else without feeling like you're a problem. In it. again back to that luck thing. sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't
1: when you touched on that part about if it's not working bail and go do something else i mean every entrepreneur i know who has done it says they got to be able to pivot right you're going to fail at some things but keep yeah. the momentum going and keep
0: trying yeah that's it lena early on in the business lena was upset one day she said to me you know i feel like i don't know what i'm doing and i said no one knows what they're doing even if someone came in because they had 40 years of footwear experience what we're doing is different and the universe has changed since they were doing it for the last 40 years so our job isn't to know what we're doing. Our job is to walk in every day, find out what we don't know, and then learn it as fast as we can so that we can adapt and deal with it.
1: Well, Stephen, again, thank you so much for sharing your, your story and your wisdom with the listeners of the show. Appreciate having you.
0: My pleasure. And if uh, you think anything I said was wise, and clearly misunderstood me.
1: <laughs> hey, and thank you to those of you who listened. I say it every show. If it wasn't for the audience, why would we even do this? So I really appreciate you. Uh, If you're first time listening to the show, go back, listen to the archives. There's some other episodes with people who are just as cool as Steven. I know you're thinking that can't be, but but it's true. We have a lot of cool entrepreneurs who have come through the last 400 plus episodes. Uh, Please come back again and tell a friend. Most people tell me they found the show because somebody else they know listens to it. So the only way I'm going to be able to grow the show is if you go tell somebody, hey, check out this podcast. We're going to be back in a couple of days. But in the meantime, I'm going to challenge you to do two things. Number one, go out and try something new. If you want different results, you can't do the same things day after day. Try new things. And then while
0: you're doing it, have a great day. Thank you for being part of the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast. Without your participation and listening to these conversations, there is no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter at at TomSinger.com.